Oh, well, welcome, guys. How, how, are, how is everybody doing this morning? Yeah? Okay. All right. I am doing okay. Uh, so I, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I flew, uh, I flew back from Portland, Oregon on uh, Friday night. Friday night. So I uh, got back late Friday night. Um, I, was, uh, I was at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, uh, taking a, uh, a class on the history of Israel, which is, I wish it was more interesting than it sounded, but <laughs> there was still a lot to be gleaned. It was still really encouraging, uh, I, it, but in so many ways uh, where I gained most of my refreshment, it was just um, spending time with a lot of, uh, a lot of people from uh, the city, uh, engaging with them hearing stories about their lives and how they're engaging uh, the city of Portland, which is a very, it is the least churched city in America. Um, and uh, they have, you know, it's, a, it's one of those cities that probably has more dogs than people. Um, and, uh, or, and especially probably more dogs than Christians. So, um, so just getting to be in a, in a place like that where... Um, I got to engage with people and hear how ministry is going, how Jesus is, is making himself known in a culture that is very hesitant to receive uh, a person like Jesus. So uh, it was really encouraging to hear all of that. I also got to drink a lot of good coffee. So, yes. Uh, but it is good, it's good to be back. So this morning, uh, we are continuing our series called Follow. Follow. And what we're doing in this series, if you've been here for any, any amount of time, is <clears throat> we are learning and leaning into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know we're not doing this series because it's, it's foundational, even though it is. And we're not doing this series because it's elementary, even though in many ways it is, but because it is essential. Because following Jesus, it's not just foundational, it's not just elemental, but it is essential to everything that we are and everything that we do, both as human beings and as the collective of believers that are known as the church. So if you've been here for the last five weeks, that, that may make sense to you. What I'm communicating to you may actually make sense, that it's essential, not just elemental or foundational. But here's what I mean by that. See, following Jesus, following after Jesus, is foundational in the sense that we cannot even think about anything else personally or organizationally until we begin to invest ourselves in this lifestyle of following. You cannot lead, for example, until you can follow. You cannot lead until you first understand what it means to be a follower. You can't be a leader. You cannot teach until you can follow. You cannot serve until you can follow. You cannot work until you can follow. 
There is this foundational element that following entails, but it is so much more than a base upon which we do other things that we would consider maybe more important or valuable with our time. It is so much more than saying, I follow, now what? Does that make sense? Following is also, an, it's not an elemental thing. It is elemental in that it's not complicated. Let me explain it that way. Following Jesus is not complex. There's not a ton of rules. There's not a lot of structure that goes into it. It doesn't require us to have years of education. It doesn't require any sort of like advancement or leveling up inside of the organization before you can be considered one of the group of followers. Following is not that complicated. It is very simple. Jesus says, follow me, and you respond. You follow him. But it is so much more than Christianity 101. It may be simple, but it's also one of the hardest things that you could ever do. (laughs) Following Jesus is essential. It is integral to your DNA as a child of God. It is built into your identity as a Christian. In fact, the very act of following, pursuing, chasing after something is an inherent part of every human being that has ever lived. But the question that comes out of that is, who do you follow? Following is built into us, but who do you follow? Who do you desire? Who do you love? Who do you want? Now we believe, I believe, that there is a God who created all things, including you and me. And that this God is calling out and inviting you to come to him. He is inviting you to receive his love and his care and his provision to walk with him and to feel his peace and to experience the joy and the hope of the greatest and most glorious and most gracious being in the entire universe. He invites you to follow him. It is the best thing you could ever do. But it will require everything. It will require every part of you. And I promise you, if you do, you will change. If you follow Jesus, you will not be the same. It's worth it. Do you want it? It's worth it. Do you want it? So for the last several weeks, we've been exploring just exactly what it means to follow. And where also along the lines, not just how we follow, but also where as we're following, what are the obstacles What are the things internally that are going to trip us up along the way? Where are the stumbling blocks on this path that we call following Jesus? So there are six parts to this journey, and we've so far we've gone through uh, four of them. First, we are called to believe. We are called to believe that God is exactly who He says He is. No more, no less. 
God is exactly who he says he is. No matter what other voices will tell you, no matter what our insides like push out of us and say, no, it's this way, no, it's this way. God is the one who says exactly who he is, and that is it. We are called to believe that. We are also called to repent, to turn from lies that we believe about those things. The lies that we tell ourselves and the things that this world that we, we look for and we hope for that will not satisfy us to leave us broken and wanting and empty inside. And then we turn from those things and we turn toward a loving and a generous and a compassionate father who loves and wants his children. Third, we are called to follow, to desire Jesus, to want him, to want what he wants. And then as we want that, as we understand we want Jesus and we want what Jesus wants, what that does is we are aligning ourselves with his will and with his mission. Even if, even if aligning ourselves with his will will take us to places that we never thought that we would go before. Even places that we thought we never want to go. It may take us there because we're aligned with him. And then fourth, we are called, last week, we talked about how we are called to remain, to be remain connected to this life-giving relationship of Jesus. As we're connected to Jesus, it restores us, it replenishes us, it inspires us to stay committed to him, to persevere, to remain through challenges and frustrations and to watch out for, to avoid getting disconnected from that. Right, disconnection, apathy. Apathy, that, that, that um, withering of the heart and the mind. That absence of life. And we, we remain connected by engaging in daily consistent habits and practices that keep our attention fixed and focused on him. So today we're going to be talking about what, we are, what it means to share because we are also called to share. And then finally next week we're going to talk about what it means to multiply. We are called to multiply. Following Jesus is essential to our identity as a church, completely. There's really not anything else that we could do as a church that would be more, th- more worthwhile of something to do. There's, there's very little in my mind where I can go, I would rather do that than follow at this point. All I want to do is just follow Jesus. All I want us to do is follow Jesus and to make followers of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus. That's what we need to do. Following him encompasses every single thing that we can do as a church. If we are leading, but we're not following, then we're failing. If we're socializing, but not following, we're failing. If we're serving, but not following, we are failing. We need to follow. So step five, 
That's where we're at in the process is sharing. Step five, share. And what we're doing is we're going to ask this question as we go along. Are you simply an individual, a single person who has a religious belief system? Is that what Christianity is? I was saved, me, myself, and I. I was saved into something. It's my own unique individual system. Or are you part of a family? Are you saved into a collective family? And if you are part of a family, then what does that mean? What does it mean to be part of this family? So our passage this morning is going to be from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, uh, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some in the back that we can get for you. Or use your phone. Or it will be up on the screen. Either way. So Paul, just for some context, some background. Paul is writing this this letter. He's writing a letter to this church. Paul does this. I don't know if you figured this out. If you've spent any time in the Bible, Paul likes to write letters to to churches. Because he cares about them. This is how you communicate in these days. It wasn't just like, let me call you up on the phone. Let me send you a text message. Let me post something on, on Facebook. It was, let me send you a letter. This is how Paul shows he cares, how he encourages, how he equips So Paul, he's writes in this letter, and he's writing it because he's been hearing something about this church. He's been hearing about how the members there, they're all about spirituality. They're all about loving God. They're all about serving and doing lots of church things. They're really on fire for that. But they've made it almost like this competition to like be the most spiritual, the most gifted, the most outwardly Christian person. It's a competition to them in Corinth. And so like some of them are doing these like crazy things like cutting in line for communion. And like, yeah, so they're like cutting in line for communion and like getting in there multiple times and actually getting drunk off of communion wine. (laughs) It's in the Bible, guys. I'm just, I'm just... Go ahead and read it. Um, They're doing this. It's like, whoa. But it's like, I'm going to be more spiritual by this point. I'm going to get so drunk off communion wine that I'm going to be the most most spiritual person. And then they're doing other things like they're, they're yelling out tongues and prophecies to like say, I've got the best gifts, everybody. And like everybody's doing it. Like the whole church starts like yelling in unison in like it's total chaos. Because everybody's saying like, hey, everybody, look at me. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. It's like a competition to be the most spiritual. And then even other people are like boasting in their freedom in Christ. by engage- This is the crazy one. They're boasting in their freedom in Christ by engaging in doing whatever they want. I am free in Christ, which means I can have sex with random people. I can sleep with my 
my daughter-in-law. Those are things that are happening in the book of Corinth, in the church in Corinth. But they're doing it with the excuse of, I'm free in Christ. There is no law that attaches to me, so I'm free to do whatever I want. And they're boasting about it. Look how spiritual I am. And they're abusing other people in the church verbally, putting them down. It's become a competition to be spiritual. That's weird, but it happens all the time. Not maybe in, in, in these like hyperbolic ways, but man, don't we get into that mode sometimes where being spiritual becomes a competition. The big issue in the church of Corinth is about getting ahead. They're obsessed with power with spiritual possession, with spiritual pleasure. But not to advance the church, to advance themselves. That's the difference. They're obsessed with these things to advance themselves forward in the Christian project. So Paul writes this letter in response to that. He hears what's going on and he's like, hold on. No. This is a corrective to them, to remind them, to rebuke them, but to remind them first and foremost that Jesus called them into a humble community with them, not to a program for its spiritual advancement, but to a humble community. And that there is no higher wisdom or power or glory than the humiliating, abject, humiliating cross of Christ. That is what brings them in. Nothing else that they can do. The cross of Christ. So then Paul, as he's doing this, he gets into this, this subject of talking about the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. He says, the Holy Spirit, when you follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and he gifts you with things. Charisma. That means an, a tangible act of grace. Charis, grace, ma is basically like the, the attachment that, that shows it's, it's tangible. It's something you can hold and feel. Okay? So charisma. Charismata. He gives you a gift of grace. That's what it means when it says, when you see the word gifts in there. It's not necessarily even an ability. It's just he's giving you something. And the Holy Spirit is giving these, these gifts to us. And the Corinthians saw that these gifts, that things like prophecy and tongues and knowledge and healing, to them, they were signs that, that those who had them were more worthy and more valuable than those who didn't. And and. And because of that, God obviously must love them and, and value them and, and prize them even more. So Paul says this in, in, in response to that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. 
for the common good. Stop right there. Look at that phrase, for the common good. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. What does that mean, for the common good? See, you were made the way that you were. You were made exactly the way that you were, with with personality traits and aptitudes and skill sets, with with specific characteristics and and personal preferences and, and passions and desires. You were made this way for a very specific reason. But you were made the way you are, not for yourself or for your own provision and protection, but, Paul says, for the good of the community. You were made to be a part of a community. And I think if we're honest, that is what draws us toward people in the first place. I mean, even those of us who are like, I don't know if you've seen this, but there are those of us who are like incredibly socially awkward and we have a really hard time fit. I say we, I don't necessarily mean me, but I'm just saying the royal we. Who have time, hard times like fitting in with like social norms and all of that. Even, even people who are socially awkward will still seek out places of belonging and like-mindedness and commonality. What is the best remedy for that? People. We seek out people to be with. There is some sort of tangible act of grace that comes to being a part of a community. We can feel it. We can touch it. We are wired for community. Not not to rule over it, not to just like suck all the life force out of it, not to just consume it, but to contribute to it, to share yourself and what you have to serve others. Your life was meant to be spent. Your life was meant to be spent. This is a vital element when it comes to following Jesus. You have been saved into a family. Christianity, the reason why we're here, is not some like individualized religious system of belief. It is communal by nature. But sometimes our natural tendency, our bent, is to turn inward upon ourselves and our own needs and our own insecurities. And those things prevent us then from experiencing life in Christ the way that it was fully intended to be experienced. That is, together. It's together that we experience life in Christ most fully. I think that the number one hindrance, the number one hindrance to the church becoming more effective in its mission to make disciples is our own inability or unwillingness to share, to reorient our lives around people, other people, other than ourselves. 
Because oftentimes the church, as we kind of know it, as we become used to it, as we become almost like uh, just desensitized to it, it becomes this place where we become educated on religious things, where we learn about religious type of things, and where we find people who happen to share our religious morals and where we make friends and we build community, but all of it is to benefit me. All of it is to benefit the self. And, and let me just say, there is nothing wrong with being a part of that type of community. There's nothing wrong with sharing a place of commonality. There's nothing wrong with education of religious things. But sometimes we get it wrong when the approach is orienting everything around what I get out of it. What I get out of it. And that ultimately hinders our personal growth. It's as if like we have something to prove to myself or to anyone else as if Jesus did not come to die for my sins. And at some point, as we do this, and as we are, if we get caught up in this idea of orienting everything that we do as a church community around the benefit of me and the benefit of myself, what happens is our path of following Jesus begins to diverge. The path diverges. And it comes from following Jesus to become a path that follows me. And that is a path that leads to destruction. Why? Because when spirituality and the church turn too far inward on the individual, the mission stops becoming about what we can give. And instead it becomes what we can take. The mission changes from what we can give to what we can take. So we stop sharing and we start consuming. We stop sharing, we start consuming. The consumer church will not grow. It will exhaust its resources. It will dry up, it will be abused, and it will die. The gospel of Jesus then becomes something that is no longer freeing, but it becomes a burdensome thing. It becomes an obstacle, actually, to getting into the community. The gospel stops changing lives, and it starts offending lives. And instead, our mission, our mission as a church, must come out of the overflow of our heart to share what we have been given. As you have been given, so also give. You were made to be shared. Your life, everything about you was made to be shared with someone else. And let me tell you that if you're worried about that, if you're concerned about that, if you don't think that you could contribute anything to it, let me tell you that each one of you is an incredibly valuable component to the life of the church. And in fact, the only limit to the life of the church 
It's the limits that we place on ourselves to participate in it. The only limit to the life of the church is the limits that we artificially or not place on ourselves to contribute to it. Now, think about like the most loving moment or act of a community that you've ever, ever experienced. Like the one that has shaped you and and guided you and inspired you the most. What is the most loving moment or act of community? Just think about that for a second. Now, was it, was it an educational conference that you were, you were there? Is that where you experienced the love of a community? Now, probably not. Not the conferences are bad. I love conferences. I just went to 30 hours of, of the history of Israel. I, I enjoy boring educational experiences. But did I experience the inherent true love of a community while I was in that moment? No. The greatest moments of love and community I got was after class when I went home and I shared meals with people. And I sat in their homes because they invited me there to stay. And they set up an air mattress for me to stay and we talked till 2 a.m. That was the loving access of the community. That was the investment. Knowledge does not change us or help us. Or or, or not change or shape us. It can help us. It can help us. Let me say that. Knowledge does help us. It does provide a framework for thought and for processing. And it it gives us tools to, to apply interesting ideas. But ultimately, we, you and I, as the possessors of that knowledge... We get to use it however we want, for good or for evil, for the benefit of others or for the sake of ourselves. My guess is if you are like me, your greatest experience of a community that loves is the moment when life itself was shared. Would you agree with that? When the benefit of the self was laid down for the sake of another. The biblical view of church is not entering into a place where we learn, but entering into a place where we love. That's the biblical view of a church. Not a place where we learn, but a place where we love. We can learn, but love is where the community happens. We are called to share. All right, so what are you called to share? What are the specific things that we are called to share? Number one, share your life. Share your life. Now, that one might seem a little like, duh. You just said share life. But here's what I mean when I say life. What I mean by this is that community will open up and thrive and grow when we are real with one another. I don't mean life as in like things that you can do that add up to experience, like to to calculate life. I'm saying life as you actually are. Your actual real on the table life. The times when you are willing to sink down deep into what is important and scares you like nothing else. That kind of life. 
That is what scares us, but is what also shapes us, and it hurts us, but it blesses us, and it encourages us. Paul conveys this idea of a true church community. He's talking to now uh, the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul is talking to them, and he says, you know, we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, you could be a burden in that instance, and said we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. In fact, Paul says, we, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, look at this, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. How is Paul saying this? When Paul is talking about a shared life, he is not talking about how long you've been attending the same church or whether you believe the same things as another person, or whether you share the same life stages. That's not what he's talking about with shared life. Because if it is just that, if it is just we've been attending the same place for a long time, we all share the similar belief systems, we're all in the same stages, areas of life. If it's just that, then all you have is this like carefully crafted facade of community. It looks like a community. There are semblances of shared experiences, but it's safe, and it's convenient, and it's controlled. It's a safe, convenient, controlled community. A shared life is not about how, like, keeping in the things that you have in common and pushing out the things that you don't. Shared life is about transparency, vulnerability, and if you're going to share anything, share a commitment to Jesus. A shared life includes, but does not exclude, people of all ages and cultures. Are you vulnerable in your conversations, in your small groups and connections to others, or do you carefully curate and craft the image that others have of you? Do you only portray what you want other people to see? Do you get out of your own way to participate in the mission of the church? Or do you seek glory from people and become a burden to your community? You don't just have to, you don't have to do to be a church. You do have to care. You don't have to do things to be a church community. But you do have to care to be a church community. We're called to share our life. Next, number two, share your things. Share your things. Now, this one, this one might be a little more self-explanatory. You have things, you share your things. So, what do you have in your possession that you can offer to others? What do you have in your possession that you can offer to others? But I think what's even a more telling question 
that we have to be honest with and we have to ask ourselves is the follow-up question to what is it that you have that you're willing to share is also what do you have that you're not willing to share? That question might actually be more revealing than the other one. What is it that you have that you're not willing to share with anyone? Now, I know this, like, I'm not, I'm not saying the goal is to just give everything away and, like, convert to monasticism and some, like, ascetic lifestyle where you don't have anything in your home, you just pray 17 times a day and, and you eat, like, from the, you just get drunk off the Holy Spirit sort of thing. Like, it's not, like, that's the only, like, water and food that you have is, like, the Bible. And, like, no, 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 no. I'm not, we're not, I'm not communicating this. That's an over-exaggeration, an overreach of what I'm saying when we say, what do you have that you're willing or unwilling to give? But what I am saying is, ultimately, I think, I'm pretty sure, you can tell a lot in what you value in how you spend your money and your time. What are you investing in? Are you a generous investor in kingdom work? Or are you a careful consumer? an investor in your own advancements. How and when we choose to answer this question reveals a lot about who and what we follow. I keep coming back to this passage in, in Acts chapter 2 because it just, it just seems to me like one of the most pure images of what the church should look and feel like. So Acts chapter 2, this community has, they've just expanded from tens, literally tens, to thousands. Like, like this. There's just this massive expansion of the church. And what's happening in the, in the, the few verses that follow is they're responding like the most directly and the most innately to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives. There's like no gap in between what happens and then what they're responding to. It's like the purest form of church identity that we can kind of see in the scriptures. And verse 44 of chapter 2 says this, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. Then it also says uh, later, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, from this, I'm looking at it, and like exegetically in the Greek, there is not like some command in here that's saying, hey, share your things like these people. It doesn't explicitly say that. There is no like expectation or responsibility that is specifically explicitly stated in this passage. All we see is this just like gut response to believing repenting, and following. It's just what springs out from that is sharing. 
a life that is renewed in the spirit, a life that is found in Jesus at its most elemental basic form immediately, instinctively leads to the sharing of that life. The overflow of joy and gratitude is joy and gratitude. With the overflow of water is more water, right? The overflow of spirit is more spirit. The overflow of mud is more mud. The overflow of joy and gratitude, more joy and gratitude. What's the overflow of selfishness and isolation? Joy and gratitude? No. Selfish and isolation. Selfishness and isolation. This gut response, this immediate response to salvation and redemption is sharing what you have. Grace. You receive grace, you share grace. You have redemption, freedom, you share redemption and freedom. These people, I think what's happening is why they're sharing with any who have need is because they themselves don't actually need it anymore. They don't need it to feel secure or supported or safe. So they share. I have it, I'll give it. They have no more problem with giving it away. There's no problem needing to withhold it because they're not needing it for anything else. They don't need it to be safe or secure or supported or powerful because Christ died for all of that. He gave it to them. The generosity of God begets generosity in us. So how you invest your resources what you have, is directly tied to what you value. And let me just say, that also includes our time. That includes our time as well. Have you ever thought about your time as a resource? Your time is a resource. You can quantify it. You can count it. You can hoard it. You can give it. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, because I don't want to embarrass you, but... but has this ever happened to you? I'll raise my hand because it happens to me all the time. Um, somebody asks you how you're doing and you say, busy. I'm busy. Man, I'm so busy. Man, I'm just really busy these days. Now, why do I say this? Why do we say that we're busy when somebody asks how we are? Because a busy life, there's, there's two reasons why we do this. A busy life in our culture signifies an important life. If I'm busy, that means I have things to do. And if I have things to do, that means I'm important. It's directly tied to our value as a person. If I'm not busy, that means I don't have things to do, which means nobody's asking me to do things to do, which means I'm not worth doing things, which means I'm not important. We create busyness in our, we manufacture busyness in our lives to make ourselves more valuable. It happens all the time. So that's one thing that it does. Busyness signifies our importance. But the other thing is, busyness signifies that I don't have time for anyone else or anything else. And you, oh person, who just wanted to know how I'm doing, who just wanted to care about me, you're not worth me spending any of my precious commodity. 
When I say I'm busy, what does that immediately do? It shuts down the conversation. Oh, I won't bother you then. I, I can't give you, I, I, I can't ask for any of your time because clearly you don't have any. You're too busy. It shuts down community. When you say I'm busy, you're communicating two things. One, I'm important. Two, I'm unavailable. Time is a commodity that we hoard and we withhold from others so easily. But it's because it's associated with our value systems. The other thing is, within that, we can also get caught up in urgency. We can get caught up in urgency, and we can miss out on what's truly important. We waste time in this way. We waste this precious commodity that we have in the pursuit of busyness or urgency. Urgent and important do not mean the same thing. Urgent and important do not mean the same thing. But sometimes we make it that way. Sometimes we, we, we argue that it is, but it's not. Sometimes the most urgent thing I can do is not the most important thing I can do. And then, then again, even then, if we're honest with ourselves, how much of that time that we say is precious to us is actually spent doing anything worthwhile? Probably not as big a percentage as we think it is, but like we say, we think it is, but it's actually, like if we were honest with ourselves, we waste an awful lot of time. But where, where are we putting it to? Where, where are we devoting that time? To me. I'm wasting it, but I'm wasting it on me, so that's worth it. I'm not saying that we don't need seasons of rest. I'm saying that we need to be intentional about our seasons of rest. Not that we withhold and withhoard. That rest is not worthwhile to us. I don't know if you've found that. Rest that we build into our lives as margin of space where we are available to God, to others, to actually resting, intentional use of it, is way more valuable in the long run than rest because we're wasting it. That's hoarded and withheld that we actually have attributed to other things in the name of urgency, in the name of busyness, but we use so poorly. And I am as guilty of that as anybody. How many unconscious hours are spent doing something that has a very little contribution to society or the self, much less the kingdom of God? Now, understanding where this happens for us would require a very real inventory of our time and our energy and prayer to discern how we spend our time, how we are spending our money, how we are, are spending our space that we have, that we prize so valuably, our space, and how much do we connect those resources to our own importance? Those possessions that you are choosing to withhold or to protect or to guard, why are you doing that? What do you need to prove? And who are you trying to prove it to? 
Is there anything in your life so important that Jesus could not die for it? Is there anything in your life that is so important that Jesus, even Jesus, could not die for that? And so you have to protect it and hold on to it. They're hard questions, but they're questions we have to ask if we are called to share. As much as we say, what do we have that we can share, we also have to ask, what do we have that we won't share? What are you investing in? What are you investing in? Because how you spend those things reveals what you are investing in. So what are you investing in? How much does it matter? What are you investing in and how much does it matter? Because your life was meant to be spent. So share your life, share your things, share your gospel. Share your gospel. And what do I mean by share your gospel? I'm actually not referring to some like evangelistic outreach program that you are supposed to be a part of. Saying sharing the gospel means you have to uh, repeat the Romans road to somebody. Some of you know what the Romans road is, but it's sort of like that evangelistic tool. Okay, it doesn't mean that you have to be doing this. Okay, that's not what I'm, it doesn't mean that, that sharing your gospel means communicating deep theology to people and like explaining to him how like the universe works and how all of this, everything and having a really strong apologetic. Again, knowledge can be helpful, but how are we using that knowledge? We have to ask that question. When I'm saying your gospel, I'm saying this. What is the good news that you yourself have received? What is, the good, what is good news to you? That's an important question. Sometimes we take the gospel and we say, it is, it is good news global, but has it affected me? Is it actually good news? Or do I just say that because it's something I'm supposed to say? But when you receive good news, something that affects you deeply, something that inspires you, it makes you laugh, it makes you happy, it makes you pleased, you enjoy hearing it, are we not compelled to share it? We are a culture of retweets and reshares and, 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 and group texts. When we get excited about something, we share it. And in our age, day and age, we share it fast. And to a lot of people, we have, <laughs> we, when, when there's something we want to say, we, are, we have no problem saying it. So what is the good news to you? What is good news that you receive? The good news for me is that I was in a bondage of sin. I was tied down, I was hopeless, I was helpless, and I was choosing to try and get out of that bondage however I could on my own. Whatever way I could, with my mind, with my will, with, with perspiration, <laughs> without inspiration, but purely effort, and I could not. I was trapped in bondage. But God is great. He is great. He is good. He is gracious to me. 
And through his son, Jesus, I was set free. I was set free from the lies that I was prone to believing, from the bondage that I had found myself in, from the hurt and the pain and the suffering that was just being piled upon and holding me down. I was set free from that. That's good news to me. That's good news to me. I've been set free. And and the amazing thing about that, the, the great part about this and why it's we're a part of a community is that the very same thing that frees me is the same thing that frees my neighbor. There is no difference in those two things. The same thing that frees me, the same truth that frees me from lies that I believed is the same truth that frees others from the lies that they believe. There's no difference between the two. Who is God and how has he freed me? We do not speak the truth of Jesus as a gospel in order to shame, in order to burden. We share it in order to free people. We want them to have what we have not as a burden, not as a toil, not as a hurt, but as a freeing thing. We share the gospel in order to free people. And that's why this gospel is meant to be shared. It's precious to us, but we should never withhold it or in, 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 like impose boundaries or, 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 or rules or things that are not part of it. The gospel is not the rules that we have to follow to get the good life. The rules is the good life that is given to us, that we receive, and it frees us. If for you, church and spirituality and that even the gospel become a burden to us or a quest for importance or power or security, then the same gospel that we share will be that as well. If the gospel to us is a quest for power and security and and belief in ourselves, that's the gospel we'll share. And if it's a burden to us, it'll be a burden to others. That is a dangerous gospel, and we cannot spread that. So let me ask you, what is good news to you? What is good news What is good news that compels you to retweet it to the world or to share it to as many people as possible? Every gift that God has given to us is for the good of the community. It is not just for you. Your life, your things, your gospel were meant to be spent. So in the end, as we we close... Know this, you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. If you sow generosity, you will reap generosity. If you sow independence, you will reap independence, but also isolation. If you sow self-reliance, you will reap a withdrawal from your community, pushing away. 
But if you want to experience a communal reality where you are sharing and loving for the good of the community and for the glory of Christ, you will receive what you give. And it takes little steps. It takes little steps to share. Just like it takes little steps to remain, as we talked about last week, it takes little steps to share. I'm not asking you to become the next Billy Graham. But maybe become a regular at at Grandma's Diner. Have a regular time when you're there. Day in, like every week where you're there and you're present with people and they get to know you and you develop a community that enables you to share. Maybe become a regular at Woody's Barbershop where you get to know people and you connect, and you provide opportunities to grow and to share. You don't have to start a citywide orphanage to share love and and encouragement, but be hospitable and generous to those who are looking for fathers and mothers. They're there. You don't have to sell your home and give away all your money. Just don't hold on to things so tightly. Be willing to let them be used. Freedom is found in being set free. Freedom is found in being set free. You were made to share. You were meant to be spent. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just ask, I I just ask that you would give us a heart that is generous, that is extravagant in how it shares its love, that we are willing to spend everything, knowing that we have already received everything. Help us to follow. Help us, Father, to reject that fear of of losing what we would deem valuable that makes us valuable because you have made us valuable we don't need to hold on and let go what's the trust in you to depend on you and doing so receive the generous love grace help us not to expect everything from everyone else. If they don't give to me, I won't have community. Let us give freely without a hope of return. Without an expectation. And we trust that you are enough for us. Your spirit indwell and invade us heal us for life with you compels us to give compels us to love compels us to be available compels us to speak 